This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. My name is Sunil Koliwad. I'm a member of the Diabetes Center uh, here at UCSF, and I'm the uh, Enrichment uh, Core Director for our Nutrition Obesity Research Center grant, which uh, runs um, in collaboration uh, with Coast and the SO grant, and is part of what we think is a really cutting-edge, very vanguard, multidisciplinary, funded effort pursuing obesity and diabetes from the basic science standpoint, the clinical translational sciences standpoint, the, the biobehavioral and uh, um, uh, policy-related standpoint simultaneously with all these arms working in lockstep and um, ideally um, in a very collaborative collegial manner. And I think we've made a lot of progress over the last year in creating an infrastructure to do that kind of science and uh, that kind of translational um, uh, impact in our population locally and, and beyond that. Um, and so with that uh, kind of multidisciplinary um, framework in mind, I think having a microbiome session is really uh, makes all the sense in the world because we're talking about one of the, the most um, uh, fundamental collaborations that there is in biology, and that is the collaboration between us as a host and uh, the teeming microbiota that uh, occupy the spaces in and around our bodies. And so with that in mind, um, I'd like to introduce today's next speaker. Um, we are very lucky to have, as one of our newer uh, assistant professors at UCSF in the departments of microbiology and immunology, Peter Turnbaugh. Uh, and Peter has done really groundbreaking work um, in understanding host microbiota interactions and has particularly focused since arriving here at UCSF um, on those interactions in terms of how we process um, foreign chemical substances, be they drugs, be they nutrient-related substances, or other substances, such that what ultimately impacts the host is a function of the dual uh, uh, roles that both the microbiota and the host play together, as opposed to each individ individual component acting separately. So we're really happy uh, for Peter to speak to us today and look forward to his comments. All right, well, yeah, it's really, really a pleasure to be here today. It's been a really fascinating morning um, and afternoon. Um, and, you know, I think something that we've sort of touched on throughout all of these talks is the important interaction between the foods that we consume and the microbes that live in our gut. And so I'm going to focus on that subject for uh, the next 40 minutes or so. Um, and so, you know, you've already gotten a really nice intro from Rob about the complex microbial communities that are um, in and on the human body. Um, and in particular, the gut um, is home to the most numerous as well as diverse microbial community. Um, and as you heard in, the, in Rob's talk, there's a tremendous amount of variation between individuals, so much so that we can actually identify who you are based on your microbiome. Um, and so a lot of the research that's being done in the microbiome field is asking the very simple question of what the major factors are that drive these variations in microbial community structure and whether or not they're relevant to the host um, in terms of disease or other aspects of our physiology. Um, and so I want to uh, return to the year of 1909 when Arthur Kendall wrote a, a really interesting paper in JBC um, and this was based on research that Arthur had done, you know, now over a century ago, um, feeding chimpanzees different diets and trying to culture the bacteria that were in their stool. Um, and he had observed that diet seemed to have a very important role in shaping these microbes. 
And so in particular, he mentions, you know, as food passes through the alimentary canal, at different levels it's decomposed by various types of bacteria, um, and that the predominating types of bacteria that take part in the decomposition will be determined largely by the nature of the diet. Um, He also pointed out that, you know, this link between diet, the intestinal microbiome, and its end products had been very largely overlooked by 1909, and and I would argue that it remained very overlooked um, until about 10 years ago. Um, uh, So Rob Rob covered a little bit of this, and and you've seen some of this data throughout the various talks. Um, The main tool that really revolutionized how people study microbial communities um, was based on this very simple basic biology observation, which is that all microbes have the same gene, or all bacteria, um, anyway... Um, and, you know, so that allows you to develop molecular methods that allow you to profile microbial communities. Um, and so that's largely based on 16S, uh, the 16S ribosomal RNA gene. And what you can then do is take a sample from the gut, um, extract all the DNA in an unbiased way, um, and then amplify that 16S ribosomal RNA fingerprint. Um, we then use sequencing methods to, uh, you know, analyze large pools of samples at the same time. Uh, this was originally done by sort of traditional capillary-based Sanger sequencing, um, and then 454, and more recently Illumina, um, and that you know gives you these large data sets um, that represent the sort of spectrum of bacteria that are found in a given sample. Um, a lot of people in the field use Chime. That's uh, the package that Rob's group developed. Um, there's also other um, software tools like Mother and, and other <laughs> methods uh, that allow you to take these complex data sets and then group them in different ways. And so traditionally, people would use what's called an operational taxonomic unit. Um, and so that groups together sequences based on their similarity to each other into what we consider sort of the equivalent of a bacterial species. Um, then from that sort of data, you can you know, graph the relative abundance of different groups of bacteria. You can you know, generate phylogenetic trees where you can compare the sequences to each other. Um, and you can perform various types of clustering uh, methods like principal coordinate analysis. Um, and so that will hopefully give you sort of a basic background to how people are approaching these complex microbial communities. In addition to targeting these marker genes um, through what's called metagenomic sequencing, we can now analyze the entire sort of set of genes that are found in a community, um, or even through RNA sequencing, which genes are transcribed. Um, okay. Uh, so for the purpose of this talk, I wanted to you know, go way back to the beginning of my PhD um, at Washington University um, School of Medicine. Um, and one of the few perks of living in St. Louis is that we have this giant park right next to the campus. Um, and all of the museums and zoos within that park are free. Um, and so the first thing that I did as a rotation student in Jeffrey Gordon's lab, um, together with Ruth Lay and a technician in the lab, Sabrina, uh, was to just walk through the park to the zoo. They let us in for free, um, and then they let us dig around for all the stool samples we could get from all their animals. Uh, um, so this is an example of an elephant cage. <laughs> um, and... and you know, an interesting thing that we learned is that despite the fact that you know, it's literally lying on the ground, we had to go through a very rigorous process to be able to take these samples from the elephants. They were worried that we were going to somehow hurt the animal. Um, you know, I was more worried for us. But <laughs> um, 
And so this data set that Ruth uh, really led was, was the first sort of overall view of the microbial communities associated with all sorts of different mammals. And so in terms of diet, we had you know, a nice selection of herbivores, carnivores, and omnivores. Um, we actually had three different locations. Um, in addition to the St. Louis Zoo, we were able to get samples from the San Diego Zoo. Um, and Ruth's uh, friend and, and collaborator was able to go to Africa and get us samples from wild animals. Um, and then we also sampled a really tremendous diversity of uh, mammals. And so everything from monotremes like echidnas or platypus um, to humans. Um, and so this is sort of the high-level clustering uh, that was done together with Rob Knight's lab to sort of group all these different samples from the uh, 60 different mammalian species um, and then you know, label them based on different things that we knew about the animals. Um, and so the major thing that really stuck out from this analysis was that you could group herbivores in green, um, carnivores in red, and then the omnivores in blue, um, even though these come from very distinct mammals. Um, and if you're interested, humans, you know, our favorite mammal, um, are right here in the middle of the omnivores, at least based on the samples that were available at the time. Um, more recently, we wondered, you know, if you looked at a wild animal population, uh, you know, animals are not static in the food that they're consuming. And so over time, you might expect that dietary intake would change, and that might alter the microbiome. Um, and so we collaborated with Amy Peterson and Sarah Knowles, who are um, wild animal immunologists um, from Edinburgh. Um, and what they do is they, they uh, very painstakingly um, go into uh, these woods um, in Liverpool, um, and they track this uh, wild um, wood mouse um, over time. And what's really unique about this study site is that they, they have you know, these two different woods um, that are about 6,000 meters apart, and then they've been gridded out into very regular 10 by 10 uh, square foot um, patches. And so that's been used for, for decades now to study sort of the ecology of, of wild mice. Um, and so we have, you know, detailed information about, you know, where the mouse was living, um, as well as, uh, you know, other important information like what pathogens it was infected by, um, uh, how old it was, its sex, and so forth. Um, and the striking thing we found um, is that, you know, following the microbial community over the course of two years, we found a, a regular shift um, over time where in... Um, in a, between sort of July and August, we saw, saw a shift in the microbial community structure. This is just showing sort of one summary of that on the y-axis here, um, and then these are you know just months throughout the two years. And so you can see that the overall microbial community tends to change um, in a similar time. If you just take the data between the two years and correlate them to each other, they were very reproducible, so a similar sort of change seemed to happen in both years. Um, and we could identify individual bacteria that seemed to be more enriched in sort of the spring versus fall. And so we saw more lactobacillus in the spring. Um, and in the fall, we saw more, more allostypes, which are a group within the bacteroidetes phylum, um, and more helicobacter, which is very interesting because helicobacter is a common pathogen of wild mice. Um, and so this was something we didn't necessarily expect. You know, we went into this thinking that maybe there would be a lot of differences between the the fields and between the woods. We didn't really see much evidence for spatial segregation. Um, and so we were really beating our heads against the wall as to you know, what might explain the seasonal effect. And maybe not surprising, given the intro, um, it turns out that um, in that month every year, uh, the seeds fall off the trees, and so the mice are given access to a new diet. 
Um, and so obviously this is a correlation. Um, what Sarah is doing now is doing controlled intervention experiments in these wild animal populations, something that's very difficult to do. Um, and so in the meantime, we've decided to take a more controlled approach in the lab uh, where you can mu much more readily um, um, alter the diet of mice. And in addition to that, we use a technique that's called notobiotics. You saw some pictures of this earlier. Uh, this is a method that's been around since the 1950s that allows us to maintain mice in a sterile um, isolator. All of the food is um, autoclaved or irradiated for sterilization. All of the bedding is sterilized. Um, the air goes through a, a HEPA filter. And so that allows you to keep mice from birth until um, the end of their life um, uh, in completely sterile conditions. And it's a really powerful tool that allows us to just ask what sort of differences or, or what phenotypes are dependent on microbes. And so the, typically the groups that we think about, um, first just define notobiotics. Um, this is a, it's a, has a Greek origin. It literally means known life. So it just means an animal where we actually know what's in it. Um, and then uh, germ-free animals have no microbes. Conventionalized animals are formerly germ-free animals that we have introduced uh, microbes too. Um, and then conventional or SPF mice are just animals that have an uncontrolled microbial community um, that are colonized from birth. Um, and so a few years ago now, um, the first experiment we did was to uh, take germ-free mice um, and then colonize them um, at 12 weeks of age while they were being fed a sort of standard mouse chow that was low in fat and high in fiber or plant polysaccharide. Um, and then we placed them on two different diets. So one was just maintaining them on the standard mouse chow. Um, and then the other is sort of a meant to mimic the Western diet. And so it's incredibly high in simple sugars um, or oligosaccharides um, and in fat. Um, and in animals, that induces dye-induced obesity over the course of five to, uh, or four to eight weeks. Um, and so uh, these animals were kept on the two different diets and then eight weeks later sacrificed. Um, at the time, we weren't able to do sort of, you know, many different time points, and so we had a relatively small number of samples. Uh, but I think the profile was so clear that um, hopefully it, you can appreciate it. Uh, so these are um, five different mice um, and the initial or, uh, mouse donor sample here. And then uh, these are the five mice that were placed on the high-fat Western diet. And you can see that if we cluster their microbial communities, they split perfectly by diet. Interestingly, the, the human, or the, sorry, the mouse that was the donor, which was also fed the low-fat diet, groups with the um, later time points on the low-fat diet. Okay. Um, we could also sort of measure overall changes in the community, and so we saw that the two major groups of bacteria in the gut, the Firmicutes and the Bacteroidetes, were altered. So the Western diet caused an expansion of Firmicutes and a decreased abundance of Bacteroidetes. Um, another thing that you've heard a lot about is the overall diversity of microbes in the gut. Um, and we saw that the diversity of bacteria um, was significantly decreased um, in mice fed the Western diet rel relative to the control diet. So the next thing we wondered is, you know, how quick these changes occur. Um, and so, you know, using uh, 454 sequencing, we're now able to really expand the number of samples and time points that we could look at. Um, and so this, I apologize, the screen is a little small, but uh, this is a, a PCOA graph where, again, the, the dots that are close to each other represent um, time points from mice uh, that have similar microbial communities. 
Um, and uh, these mice were colonized, and one day after the colonization, they were all still fed the low-fat diet. You can see the time points cluster together. We then looked seven days and 28 days later, and they, they sort of move a little bit from the initial colonization, but they're still grouping nicely. Um, and now we're going to switch half of the mice to the Western diet and ask how soon we see an effect on the microbial community. And we were really shocked that just one day after the dietary intervention, we saw a dramatic effect. Um, that uh, increased a little bit a week later and then was maintained over the following uh, two months. And so the Western diet, at least for stool samples, has a very dramatic effect um, within only a single day. Um, we, also, we then wondered you know, whether or not this was just something special about the end of the gut, you know, if stool was somehow different, um, or if the Western diet could also affect the microbes that are found in the small intestine um, and different parts of the large intestine. And so what's shown here is just samples that are colored by their location in the gut. Um, and so a stool is in sort of orange. Um, and then the small intestinal samples are in green. There's also stomach, uh, cecum, which is the part of the intestine between the small and large intestine in mice, um, and the colon. Um, and what you can see is that all the groups, or all the samples taken on the Western diet are on the right of this graph, and all the samples taken on the low-fat diet are on the left. So despite the fact that there's a lot of differences in the types of bacteria that can colonize different locations in the gut, diet seems to have a much more dramatic effect than where you are um, along the length of the gastrointestinal tract. Um, so a couple of years ago, we, we decided to then, you know, see what would happen if we did a similarly dramatic dietary intervention in humans. And so we wanted to design, you know, two very distinct diets that we could administer to people um, and then monitor daily uh, changes in the gut microbiome. Um, and so to start with, we decided to um, choose sort of the two most extreme diets that we could think of. Uh, one was all animal products. So this is my favorite diet. Um, <laughs> it's uh, my favorite food, salami. Um, <laughs> then, then we gave a, a delicious array of barbecue, eggs, and cheeses. Um, and then we also um, designed a, a very disgusting diet called the plant-based diet, <laughs> which was grains, legumes, fruits, and vegetables. Um, okay. Uh, and so I just want to you know, emphasize to you that we really caused a dramatic difference in dietary intake to what people were consuming at baseline. And so we were able to get these people to take daily diet logs throughout the whole course of the experiment. Uh, the diets themselves were only five days, and we had uh, nine people that went through both arms and, and one person that dropped out after the first, and then we replaced them. Um, but what you can see here, this is grams of fiber intake per 1,000 kilocals that they consume. Um, so during the, the few days of baseline, um, they're consuming sort of a similar amount of fiber to what people in America would normally um, take in. Um, and that went up about two and a half times um, during the plant-based diet. And then as soon as they're let go onto their washout or, or uh, allowed to eat their normal diet, uh, they return to the standard level on average. On the animal-based diet, we did something sort of more extreme, which was in, in addition to taking out fiber, we actually removed all carbohydrates from the diet. Um, and so they were only consuming protein and fat as macronutrients. So it's sort of an extreme version of the Atkins induction phase. <laughs> Um, okay, and so uh, as you would expect, on the first diet, there's a little bit of a drop in fat intake. On the animal-based diet, we actually increased fat intake to 70% of their daily calories, um, and protein was about 30%. 
and so that's just at a high level. Um, there's also you know, many subtle differences between these two diets that we think are interesting. Okay. Um, the next thing we just asked was, you know, based on sequencing the microbiome over time from daily samples collected throughout these two diets, you know, how similar was each um, day for a given person to their baseline microbial community structure? And sort of a measure of how much of an effect the diet had um, on these people's microbiomes. And so in terms of the plant-based diet, we were sort of surprised that we actually didn't see much of a change um, in the overall structure of the community. Whereas for the animal-based diet, we saw that within a couple days of the diet, um, and actually one day of when a, a food coloring that we added to the food was detectable, um, we saw a significant increase in this sort of beta diversity measurement. And so this suggests that the animal-based diet is really dramatically shifting these people from where they started. Okay. Uh, we next asked the question of which bacteria were higher on the animal-based diet or lower on the animal-based diet. Um, and this is a really complicated figure uh, where on the x-axis we're looking at the, the fold change on plant, the plant diet relative to baseline and then fold change on the animal-based diet versus baseline on the y-axis. Um, and the sort of interesting thing is that you can then dig in and look at which bacteria were up on the animal-based diet. Um, and we saw a number of bacteria like Bilophila wadsworthii as well as other members of the Bacteroidetes phylum uh, that have been shown to be very resistant to bile acids. And this was very interesting to us because it's known from prior work that during you know, consumption of high levels of dietary fat, the amount of bile that's produced by the host is increased. And so that pr might provide a selection pressure or you know, provide a way of reducing the growth of some bacteria and increasing the growth of others. Uh, on the flip side, when we looked at the bacteria that were down on this diet, uh, we saw a number of interesting bacteria like Roseburia and New Bacterium uh, rectale um, that are known to be very efficient in degrading plant polysaccharides or fiber. And so that you know, may be uh, the reason that they're no longer you know, seeing the fiber that was in the baseline diet. Okay. Uh, we could also measure the sort of downstream products of microbial metabolism using these samples. Um, and so uh, a product that you've heard a lot about is short-chain fatty acids. Um, these come in many different flavors. Uh, the two that we hear a lot about all the time is acetate and butyrate. These are produced when microbes ferment um, carbohydrate. And so as you, as you might predict, on the plant-based diet, we see more acetate and more butyrate relative to the animal-based diet. Um, the other thing that was really neat is that we could actually measure, measure isovalerate and isobutyrate, which are produced during the bacterial fermentation of protein. And again, you can see those go up on the animal-based diet. And so that suggests that the microbiome is able to sort of shift its metabolism from carbohydrate to protein based on what we're consuming. Okay. Uh, you can also sort of see signals of that sort of shift in metabolism based on sequencing the expressed genes um, from these samples. Uh, for example, this is a, a pathway for using glutamine and glutamate. We saw that all the enzymes for breaking down these amino acids were expressed at higher levels on the animal-based diet, and the enzymes required to make these amino acids were expressed at higher levels on the plant-based diet. Um, the next thing that you might wonder is, you know, what happens if you go out and find somebody that's been a lifelong vegetarian and then ask them to eat um, meat? Uh, um, this is a... It, uh, only based on one person. <laughs> but uh, I, I think it's informative, uh, but take that as a caveat. 
Um, so on the plant-based diet, you know, one of the really striking things that's been found in the microbiome when we compare individuals from around the world is that these two groups of bacteria found in the gut, the Bacteroides and the Prevotella, um, tend to be mutually exclusive. So if you have a lot of Prevotella, you usually don't have many Bacteroides and vice versa. And nobody really knows what the reason for that shift is, but it's potentially linked to dietary intake. Um, and so on the plant-based diet, we found uh, that the subject six, that was a lifelong vegetarian um, and also an immigrant, um, was, uh, was fairly stable, so maintained incredibly high levels of Prevotella, so that's 60 to 80 percent of the bacteria in um, that individual's stool. Um, whereas all the other individuals in the study sort of stayed at um, high bacteroides and didn't um, markedly increase the amount of Prevotella. Um, whereas on the animal-based diet, we saw something really interesting, which is the vegetarian, um, although they, again, during their baseline sample, started high Prevotella, we could see three days and then four days um, after the diet that they were starting to shift towards a more bacteroides-dominated microbial community. Um, and comfortingly to us, <laughs> after going back to their baseline diet, they sort of snapped back, and so um, we didn't permanently uh, destroy their Prevotella. Okay. Um, the other really interesting thing about dietary intake is that it's not just about how diet changes the resident microbes in our gut. We're actually consuming live microbes as well. Um, and this is most well studied in the case of bacteria, but also, the case, also true for fungi, viruses, um, and other microbes. Um, and so one of the things that we were able to do in the study was to um, administer um, three... Um, and artisanal cheeses that were donated by a, 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 an anonymous cheese vendor. <laughs> and uh, we, we then sequenced the bacteria and fungi that were in each of these cheeses. So on the top here is blue cheese. Um, we saw mostly uh, Staphylococcus um, was the most dominant group. And then you can see there's a lot of Canada um, in the blue cheese rind. Um, and then that, that's true for the, so we were able to profile the rinds as well as the center of each of these cheese types. We can also see string cheese, which was actually um, still had high levels of Streptococcus thermophilus, um, and, and as well as the fermented meats, prosciutto and salami. And so that provided us with sort of molecular data that we could then look for these microbes in the stool samples that we collected from these patients over time. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think I took out that for time. Um, so we were able to detect them based on 16S. But the maybe more exciting thing is that when we looked at the RNA that was in these samples, we were able to see that many of these bacteria as well as fungi um, had markedly increased expression on the animal-based diet when the people were consuming the cheese. And, so this, and, and because of the fact that RNA does not survive very long in the gut, it implies that these microbes are actually surviving transit throughout the gastrointestinal tract. Um, and so, you know, we don't really know whether or not they did anything interesting in there, but they at least were able to survive. And we were able to actually confirm that by taking stool samples from people on their baseline time points and during the animal-based diet and show that we could actually culture out live fungi that were from the cheese that they were consuming. Um, and so one of the potential consequences of these changes um, is linked to inflammatory disease. This was not the main purpose of the study, but something that um, I think was very intriguing. Um, and it's connected to a series of studies that's been done in Eugene Chang's group 
um, at University of Chicago. Uh, I mean, what Gene and uh, his graduate student, uh, Suzanne Dovkota, showed is that if you feed diets that are high in fat, um, in particular saturated fats, uh, you can drive um, an increased host production of bile acids. Those bile acids um, contribute to the expansion of Bilophila wadsworthii, the bacteria I mentioned earlier. Um, and if you're a mouse that's genetically susceptible to inflammatory bowel disease, the Bilophila will then um, uh, cause uh, ulcerative colitis, like phenotype. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that was sort of disturbing is that the number one group of bacteria that we saw enriched on the animal-based diet uh, was Bilophila, uh, included Bilophila wadsworthii in green there. Um, we were able to confirm that using another independent method called a quantitative PCR based on a gene that is unique to Bilophila, which again we see is elevated on the animal-based diet. And we also saw that this gene was actively expressed based on RNA sequencing. Um, in addition to that, if you just look at the dietary intake records for these people, we found that the strongest predictor of Bilophila abundance was the amount of dietary fat that was consumed. Um, the bile acids were also elevated. Um, and so this provides the first sort of support in humans um, for, you, for the hypothesis from the Chang lab uh, that diet and the host production of bile acids may alter the microbiome in a way that could contribute to disease. Um, obviously, this is a very short-term intervention, so we have no idea whether or not these people, if left on this diet, uh, would develop inflammatory bowel disease, but it's uh, something that's very important, we think, to look into. Um, okay, um, so you might be wondering, you know, if diet is really so important, you know, is there any role for host genetics or the immune system or other components of our own body in shaping the microbiome? Um, and so Rachel Carmody, uh, one of the postdocs in the lab, decided to test this um, using animal models where we can sort of systematically change the, the mouse genome um, and see whether or not that is stronger um, or less strong than a dietary intervention. Okay. Um, and so we started using a panel of outbred mice that we um, obtained from collaborators at Jackson Lab. Um, so, so these are animals where every uh, mouse has a very distinct um, set of genes. Um, and uh, in addition to that, based on the way that these mice were derived, we can really easily um, sort of reconstruct their entire genome. And so we know every mutation throughout the genome of each animal. Um, okay. Um, but the important thing is that we took 60 of these mice and then we, we started them again on this low-fat diet, put them through sort of two successive pulses of the high-fat diet. And so they initially got it just for one week, they were returned to the low-fat diet for a week and then put on the high-fat diet for, for two months. Um, and then we just asked, you know, across these 60 animals, how reproducible were the changes that we see in the microbiome? Um, and the sort of surprising thing is that, you know, despite the fact that there's a lot of genetic diversity in these animals, uh, we saw that um, in all of the mice, um, they started um, with sort of one community structure. Um, and within, you know, just one or two days, again, uh, on the high-fat diet, their microbiome was altered. Um, they sort of switched back during the recovery period, um, and then, you know, during the following two months, um, returned to the same sort of state. And so, again, that suggests that, you know, diet really has a dominant role in shaping the microbiome. In addition to that, we compared different inbred mouse strains where they um, uh, have uh, very similar genomes uh, within each group, and we found similar effects. Um, 
The even more, I think, surprising thing is that if you remove the entire immune system, uh, you still see these effects. And so, uh, for example, um, we can knock out MITE88, which is a key adapter protein that's required to sense bacteria um, using toll-like receptors. Um, and these MITE88 mice still respond to the high-fat diet, although maybe, interestingly, they, they sort of regressed a little bit, so that might be... Um, you know, the maintenance of this altered state might be dependent on the immune system. In addition to that, you can knock out all B and T cells by taking out RAG1, um, and the RAG1 mice actually respond very similar to wild type. Um, and so the next experiment that a, a really um, hardworking undergrad in the lab, Jesus Lovano, decided to do uh, was just to toggle the diets of these mice back and forth and to see, you know, how robust are these changes um, to, uh, over time. And so he had two groups of mice, one that was oscillating. Um, so every three days, they went between the low-fat and high-fat diet. Um, he had a second group just to sort of control for differences in the facility that might be sort of causing our, our microbes to change over time that were oscillating in the, on the opposite days. Um, and then a control group that, sw- that stayed on the low-fat diet until the very end, and a high-fat-fed group that was switched immediately and then maintained. Um, and so... Um, I guess for time, I'll sort of skip through the host data. Um, but the, the uh, main finding that we observed was that the microbiome changed incredibly rapidly and in a reproducible fashion. And so you can see here, this is the oscillating group in the solid line, where every three days, within, you know, immediately, the microbiome is altered um, and stays in that altered state um, until it's returned to the prior diet. Um, and then the reverse group is shown in the, dot, in the uh, dotted line. Um, and then these are the control uh, groups. So the low fat you know, stays pretty constant, and then the high fat shifts right away and sort of stays in that lower area. Um, and so the other sort of related question is that you know, these two diets that we've been comparing in mice have been relatively distinct from each other. And so what happens if you do a more subtle dietary intervention? Would that still affect the microbiome? Um, and so Rachel um, blended these two diets together, where we have um, anywhere between you know, the, the complete uh, low-fat diet to the complete high-fat diet, um, and then you know, different steps at either you know, 25% high-fat, 50%, 75%. And then we again measured the microbial community. Um, and we saw that there was a dose-dependent effect of the amount of high-fat, high-sugar diet that was added. Um, both in terms of sort of overall structure of the community as well as the abundance of the major two groups of bacteria in the gut, the Firmicutes and the Bacteroidetes. Um, And then, you know, as was mentioned in one of the earlier talks, um, we think that these effects that are mediated by these high-fat diets could again um, have important consequences for the host. Uh, One of the things that's been studied by us and and others um, is the potential role in metabolic disease. Um, One of our earlier experiments was to compare... Um, again, mice on the low-fat versus high-fat diet that were used to colonize a panel of germ-free recipients. And then we just asked the question of whether or not the mice that got the high-fat diet-associated microbiome uh, gained more fat um, than the control group. Um, and what we found is that although the, the mice that got the control donor microbiome still gained some body fat, there's about twice as much increase in the mice that were given the high-fat-associated community. Um, and the same is true in mice that are colonized by human samples and then put through the same dietary intervention. And this is really surprising because in our hands anyway, the mice did not actually change their caloric intake at all. 
Um, and they were very similar at the start of the experiment in terms of their weight and, and body fat. Okay, I'll just briefly mention one of the ongoing uh, experiments in the lab, uh, which is to um, now ask the question of, you know, what happens if we consume the same diet um, but just change how the food is prepared? Um, and so you can imagine that this would be really important for the microbiome for a couple of different reasons. Um, one is that um, cooking the food that we consume aids in its digestion. Um, and so, for example, this is a, a picture of... Um, Plant cells where in red, this is the starch that's found in these very tight globules. And then after applying heat, you can now see that the starch is more evenly dispersed throughout the cell. And so this makes these carbohydrates much more um, susceptible to cleavage by enzymes in our body. Um, in addition to that, when we cook our food, we've, um, all sorts of interesting chemistry occurs. And that includes you know, taking away compounds that are in the raw food, as well as producing new compounds. Um, and so Rachel uh, decided to test this um, by administering either diets that were all meat or all, um, uh, all plants, in this case a sweet potato, in either raw or cooked fashion. Um, and in addition to the sort of overall impact of the substrate, um, she was able to find that on the raw tuber diet, there was a very dramatic effect of cooking, uh, where all the raw samples are on the left here and all the cooked samples are on the right. And so something about this raw tuber diet was having a very um, important effect on the microbiome. Um, we then looked at which bacteria were altered, and we found that on the raw tuber diet, um, there was an increase in bacteroidetes at the expense of the firmicutes. That's um, also shown here. Um, but maybe more interestingly, we found that there was evidence for antimicrobial effects of these raw diets. And so this is an, an assay um, where we're just measuring the abundance of damaged bacteria um, in the gut of mice fed either the raw tuber in orange, a cooked tuber in green, ampicillin as a sort of positive control antibiotic in red, um, and then chow in gray. And you can see that on these raw tuber diets, there's a, a dramatic elevation in damaged microbial cells, similar to what happens when you give them antibiotics. Um, so in conclusion, um, we found uh, that your gut microbes are really um, influenced very closely by what we eat. Um, and that's true when we sort of compare mammals across mammalian evolution. Um, it's true in lab mice, um, and we think is also true in humans. Um, and finally, you know, early or ongoing work in the lab suggests that it's not just about what we consume, but how we prepare, prepare the food. Um, and so just to wrap up, um, uh, as you've sort of gotten a, a sense for over the course of the day, there's many potential consequences of changes in the microbiome that are caused by a change in diet. And that can be very fundamental aspects of our physiology, whether or not that's our um, weight or adiposity or other aspects of our metabolism, um, um, or potentially our predisposition to disease. Uh, many diseases recently have been linked to the microbiome, including metabolic syndrome, malnutrition, IBD, and cancer. Um, and so a lot of the work moving forward will be trying to test whether or not these diet-dependent changes in the microbiome are contributing to the increase in disease that we see in Western populations. Uh, okay, so with that, I want to thank um, Corinne Marie. She was a, a postdoc in the lab who did the wild mouse study. Um, Lawrence David, who, who led the human dietary intervention, and then Rachel, who worked on all the results in, in mice that I showed you. So with that, uh, thanks so much, and I look forward to your questions.
Um, yeah, so that's a, a really good question. So in mice, you know, there's typically a few types of fat that are added to these foods. Um, we have used a couple different flavors in some of our early uh, versions we were using um, animal fat, um, so it's sort of a purified, saturated fat from uh, beef. Uh, we've also done experiments with a milk-derived saturated fat. Um, and other labs have used many other diets. So Gene, you know, the, the experiment I told you about that was done in the Chang lab actually compared many different fat sources and found that it was only the milk-derived saturated fat that caused this dramatic expansion in Bilophila. And so they're currently trying to figure out, you know, what specific lipids were in uh, that um, source that could actually be causing that effect. Um, in humans, we haven't really, you know, broken it down to that controlled level. Um, you know, we're feeding real foods, uh, so these were the types of fat that you would see um, in, you know, beef and pork products. Um, but we haven't, you know, done sort of controlled fat um, experiments yet in humans. But that, that would be a great experiment to do. Um, yeah, we have not studied that. I think yeah, that that's particular study was from Andrew Gewurz's lab at, at Emory, I believe. Um, but uh, it's definitely a really interesting area. Um, I think you know, similar to the sort of the fat consumption story that I mentioned for Bilafla, um in Andrew's research, um, the emulsifier consumption depends on sort of host predispos- predisposition to disease. So if you consume a, a diet rich in emulsifiers and you're you know, a healthy wild-type mouse, um, you, know, you don't actually develop inflammatory bowel disease or metabolic syndrome, but it's sort of the combination of the emulsifier intake and another hit on the host side that can drive disease. And, and that you know, may well be true in humans as well and is a really important um, area for future research. Yeah, no, I think that's a really important point um, that... Uh, you know, often what we're talking about when we show an effect of diet on or diet or antibiotics or other perturbations on the microbiome, um, including enteric infections and other um, things that might happen in the gastrointestinal tract, are you know really fundamentally changes in the abundance of bacteria that are found in the gut. And so there's actually very little um, precedent in humans, anyway, and in mice that you can remove or add, back, add in new organisms during that sort of perturbation. It tends to be a change in abundance. And so you know, one way we think about it is that a lot of the stability is sort of the microbes that you're colonized early in life. Um, those particular strains or species might be carried on you know, through many different perturbations later in life. Um, but their abundances relative to each other can change on the time scale of days or maybe hours. And so, you know, it's an important question whether or not, you know, which is more important, um, you know, how similar are the strains that are in you versus me at a functional level, and, you know, should we be more or less worried about changes in abundance or changes in overall composition? Yeah, so there's a, there's a couple things um, that are important to point out. Uh, one is that... Um, Humans are hard to experiment on. <laughs> and, uh, and when we do mouse experiments, uh, the experiment is ideal in the sense that they're on one diet, diet A, and then shifted to diet B. You know, every animal eats diet B all day long, but well, or every time they feed anyway. Um, and, it, you know, it's a very defined shift. Whereas in humans, uh, typically when people do nutritional interventions, and I apologize if I offended anybody, uh, <laughs> you know, there, there are many concessions that are made to what you can get a person to eat. 
Um, you know, typically the dogma is like, no one will sign up for a trial where they eat the same food all day long for multiple days. That sounds horrible. Um, we did that for our study <laughs> and, you know, got people to sign up. But, you know, I'm sure there was a selection bias uh, so that, you know, wouldn't be a generalizable strategy. Um, and so, you know, you try to induce incentives to people to sort of, you know, consume very boring diets um, or to do it in a more controlled setting than they would normally do at home. Um, but that's undoubtedly, you know, one of the major issues why it's very hard in humans to to link, you know, dietary intake and the and the microbiome or any other trait. Yeah, yeah, it's actually it's a not um, one of the inspirations for our experiment was uh, there's this paper that was published back in 1923 in JAMA. Um, there was an Arctic explorer that um, you know had seen what was being consumed. <laughs> and was uh, impressed by the fact that despite the fact that people were eating these high-fat diets, they were very lean. You know, obviously they're living, you know, in the Arctic, so maybe that helps. <laughs> um, but they actually did a study in 1923 where the, the explorer and his, you know, crazy clinician friend um, ate meat for multiple years um, without any other source of nutrient. Um, and that was actually one of the first sort of proofs that you don't need other sources of vitamins in your diet. Um, but interestingly, in that paper, um, just to emphasize how long people have been working on the microbiome, <laughs> there's, a, there's a paragraph on the microbiome in that paper. <laughs> and there's actually a follow-up study um, uh, just about the profiling. And so you know, that idea um, that these high-fat diets are altering the microbiome is, is very old. Yeah, so there is um, data on sort of full-out calorically restricted people, some of which from the Gordon Lab um, and others, looking at the microbiome. And then there is also, uh, just because he's on my slide, um, <laughs> Reiner Dumpertz on the bottom right here um, is a visiting scholar who's here at UCSF right now. He's in the audience. Um, and when I, when I was in graduate school, Reiner and I collaborated together on a study where he was able to um, administer controlled diets to individuals that only vary, so they were controlled in terms of macronutrient intake, but, only, but had differences in overall caloric intake. And he was able to show for the first time that you know, those changes in terms of caloric intake can affect the microbial community in the gut. So that's published work. Uh, yeah, I think that's a really interesting question and one that uh, you know, other labs are working on in the context of early development. You know, so whether or not exposure to these diets at very early ages can have long-lasting consequences. Probably the sort of related set of studies that's most well known is work that's been done in Marty Blazer's lab showing that low doses of antibiotics early in development can you know, cause increased weight in mice um, uh, or increased uh, body fat, sorry, in mice um, at much later time points, even though that doesn't really cause any permanent change to the microbiome. Although, you know, the related question is whether or not um, there is any sort of memory of our dietary intake in the microbiome itself. Um, and I sort of skipped over it due to uh, complexity, but, <laughs> you know, one of the things we did in the oscillating experiment was to um, collaborate with uh, Georg Gerber, who's a mathematical modeler, and he was able to find individual species and, and gene families that were um, altered um, in response to the number of successive exposures to the high-fat diet. Um, and so at least in that experiment, you know, those groups were different on the final high-fat diet arm versus you know, the first or second or third. 
And so, that, you know, there, even though the overall structure is very reproducible, there might be, you know, some individual, you know, components of the microbiome that can sort of remember what we've eaten before. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.